his children on his deathbed. This comes to us by way of Genesis 49 and verses 2 all the way through 27, the latter portion of which we'll cover today. He, over each one of his sons, Jacob, proclaims something of the word of God. Today he saved his two favorites, if you will, for last. As you recall, Rachel, the favored wife, bore him two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. They are the last to receive his blessing, but Joseph receives the blessing of greatest length. We'll cover that in our text today and close with Benjamin's uh, at, with the, uh, Benjamin's prayer in verse 27, and that will comprise the, the totality of our text today, along with some references of the significance through this that we'll touch upon through the course of history and scripture. Today's title is Rachel's Sons. That would be, of course, Joseph and Benjamin. And we uh, see the legacy proclaimed by their father today. And our aim is to proclaim Christ revealed in the legacy of Rachel's sons. Now, how do Joseph and Benjamin point to our Lord Jesus? We'll cover that by way of context as well. With that introduction and your heart open to the Word of God, would you stand in reverence for the reading of the infallible Scriptures, the inerrant Word of our Lord? This is Genesis 49. We're reading today 22 through 27. Hear now the words of Christ. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you, by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be upon the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Today we see, visit another pattern in the words of Jacob that applies to these two sons as it has to others. If you recall, recently we talk, covered the legacy of Zebulun and Naphtali under the category of Jacob's ordinary sons. As Jacob prophesies over his sons, it's not only limited to them as an individual and not even limited to their family, but they are representatives of the work of God in some way that, is, that applies to us and that we also see applying to others as well. Through the course of scripture in Jacob's dying song he prophesies that the sons of Rachel his sons will be incorporated into the legacy and blessings of all future national Israel Ephraim's name you remember Joseph's sons Ephraim and Manasseh the second the blessed uh, of his sons Ephraim that name will become prominent in the history of Israel such that it will be synonymous with the ten northern tribes of of the uh, nation as Benjamin will join Judah in the southern portion, and as covenant history unfolds thus, the sons of Joseph, and Joseph through them, is intrinsically linked to God's history and purposes for all of his covenant people. Given this context, then, that would attend the way of all God's people, uh, these blessings pronounced over the sons are not limited to them, but they are representative of God's work through his uh, with, through his called nation, through his people moving forward. 
Jacob's sons, uh, that uh, of Jacob's sons in this passage, Joseph receives the most attention. The most words of blessing are given to him. And you might naturally think, well, this makes sense because of all Jacob's sons, Joseph is revealed as his favorite. But this doesn't, it is not consistent, however, with the word over Benjamin, which is just one sentence, one short sentence, one verse. So it does not explain why that is this uh, exam, or the reason for the extended uh, blessing over Joseph, simply his, due to favoritism. Instead, it reminds us that these are not merely the words of Jacob, but under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he is in fact speaking the word of God. The context of the record and the nature of inspired scripture, they uh, are, Joseph's blessing is rather the word uh, we find from these, we draw from these, the nature of inspired scripture and the context of this passage that Joseph, Jacob's words are the word of God, bearing much more significance than Joseph alone, for instance, could justify. Therefore, this occasion serves to magnify prophetic revelation, transcending the moment, pointing to Jesus Christ, pointing to God's purposes through his people, what they can expect along the way, and that there is hope on the horizon. We point once again to that central verse in the middle of his song, I wait for your salvation, O Lord, serving as something of a theme or chorus to which all of these blessings somehow serve, a purpose these blessings serve, that one day, the, the waiting of God's people will be answered by the hope on the horizon when the sunlight, the sunrise of God's purposes finally dawns in the incarnation and salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord, arises. So as we look at this, we see here again pictures and prophecy pointing forward to Jesus Christ. This is the great cause of redemption unto the glory of the God, that is, God will save his people. And in so doing, he will glorify himself. And who is he? He's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob. And he's the God of Rachel's sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So with that, let me give you a heading. Four major points this morning. The people of Joseph and Benjamin will be known for the following. Number one, we'll explore these pictures in due course. Joseph's fruitful bough. So think of a pine bough, right? A branch from a tree. We're familiar with that term. Joseph is described as a fruitful branch of a planting or a tree or a vine, you could say, a fruitful bough. Secondly, Joseph and Benjamin will be known for, Joseph will be known for his unmoved bow. So everyone knows what a, what a bow is. A bow and arrow, the archer uses these implements as tools of war or hunting, right? Joseph's bow will be unmoved. Thirdly, Joseph will have a blessed brow. These are convenient words that all begin with B. It's almost embarrassing how good it works. Bow. Or it's almost hard to say, bow, bow, and brow. I, I tried saying that 10 times quickly and I failed. Joseph's blessed brow, the blessings of God will be featured upon his head. What does that mean? And then finally, Benjamin's triumph in verse 27. So that's our outline today. The people of Joseph and Benjamin will be known, first of all, for Joseph's fruitful bow. Genesis 49, 22. Consider again this verse. Joseph is what? He is a fruitful bough. He is described in this poetic language as a planting, a vine which bears much fruit. Furthermore, a fruitful bough by a spring. Spring, of course, speaks to a reason why he's fruitful. His branches, it says, will run over the wall or run over the wall. 
Turn back with me, if you would, to Genesis 30, 24. It's amazing when we look at these texts, one way that I try to take them in the context is look for patterns and threads across Scripture that would give us deeper understanding of some of these pictures. And you just look at the meaning of Joseph's name itself, and you find some answers to the significance coming forth as you compare these texts. In Genesis chapter 30, you guys remember, she called his name, that is Rachel, called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Prior to this, 22, the Lord had remembered Rachel. God had listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. You remember Rachel was in anguish. She was barren. There's something of a contest between her and Leah. Who could earn our husband's greatest favor by the measure? This is the measure the wives had, not necessarily Jacob. Who can bear him the most children? Because that's what they valued. That's where they placed their identity. That's what they felt they had to offer their husband. And so Rachel is greatly anguished. And she is saddened because her womb has not been fruitful. Nevertheless, the Lord did remember her. That is, he visited her with his favor, and she became pregnant with her first boy. That boy's name was Joseph. When he was born, she says, God has taken away my reproach. So my indignity, my sense of low self-worth, my, uh, my sense of low value in this family, God has heard my prayer, and he has blessed me by giving me this son, and then she named, his, she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Please, God, could you give me more kids? So Joseph's name literally means addition or increase. Uh, one commentator says, Now, Rachel died only having two children. And Rachel's life was not an easy one. In childbirth, when Benjamin came, she died as a result of the complications of labor along the road from uh, Ephrath to Bethel. And there, as she, in her dying moments, is naming her second son. She names him, I think, Ben-Omi. And it means child of my pain or suffering or anguish. She had a difficult life. She struggled with her sense of worth because of the bareness of her womb. And she struggled with bearing her second child such that it took her life. She died in childbearing. Giving out of the 12 sons, she could only boast two of them. The others came by way of concubine or her rival, uh, sister Bri, if you will, or wife, uh, Leah. This is the way the circumstances were during her life. Regardless of this, one commentator writes insightfully, the barren woman will become fruitful, if you will. So the, uh, the quote is being, barren Rachel will provide the most fruitful tribe. Isn't this something? The fruitfulness of Joseph's bow demonstrates that the expectations within the lifespan of Rachel, however falling short of her hopes and dreams, nevertheless are satisfied as the, uh, as the generations continue to unfold. Might we draw an application from this? Uh, mothers, can any, any of you relate to the pain and anguish of Rachel? She, of course, is the extreme case. But how many times in the difficulty and arduous task, repetitive way of disciplining a child or changing another diaper or raising your kids, all the stress, anxiety, and basically the survival mechanism that, or the survival uh, mindset that kicks in to try to just get through another day 
And you moms know how difficult it is to keep the household together when you have a lot of demanding circumstances all hitting you at the same time, young children, potty trained or not yet potty trained, sick kids, and so on and so forth, and trying to educate the older ones and all, all, all at once. This week I was at home uh, because the cold weather took some office days. Every time I do that, it gives me a deeper appreciation for what I ask my wife to do when I'm at work. To manage this household is not easy. I must say, I must admit, it's a lot easier to hang soffit, which is what I would be doing if it was 20 degrees or so, rather than staying home and doing office work and uh, getting first hand, a, a better first-hand day-to-day picture, perspective, of how difficult it can be to raise children. And Rachel felt this in the extreme. Nevertheless, in due course, the promises of God proved true. Rachel didn't know in experience, but could know by faith before she died, is that though she only had two sons, through them, fruitfulness would abound. Have faith, parents, mothers and fathers, as you go about the difficult daily task of raising children and the thankless job of changing diapers and everything else that's involved in the care and the uh, nurturing and the admonishing of these little ones that you are sowing seeds that may not bear magnificent fruit in the near term, but if you do so in faith, God can make them a fruitful bough that can branch over the wall and the word of Christ can go forth through Christian families in multiple generations covering this world by this means until the water, like the waters cover the sea with the amazing exponential power of simple obedience in the day-to-day tasks of raising family. I just wanted to pass that application along to you. Joseph has been like a bough planted by a spring. What is a spring? It's an everlasting, ever plentiful source. And this speaks, of course, to living water. Joseph, this fruitful bough is fruitful for a reason. He has found a spring. We see in the course of Joseph's own life how this principle is true. He has trusted in the one true God, Yahweh. And even though he has faced much affliction in the course of his days, sold into slavery, imprisoned, unjustly, accused, and so forth, nevertheless, in the course of his years, he becomes amazingly fruitful and abounding to the point where his wise counsel and direction in Egypt has filled the silos to overflowing to feed all the known world when famine comes. His name and his legacy thus in his life and beyond speak to abounding fertility, prosperity, and power, a multiplication of number, an increase in population and influence. Rachel's prayers are answered in fullness in future generations. God will give the increase, not by way of just another son, please, before I die, but by the way of son after son after son. As this nation grows and expands, And as God eventually ransoms a a people from bondage, a million strong, to enter into the promised land. Jacob's blessings also, Jacob's blessing at this time echoes Joseph's own faith invested in his, uh, or echoes uh, Joseph's own life experience. Jacob's faith invested in his son and Joseph's own faith invested in his second son, Ephraim, which means double fruitfulness. Joseph meant increase. Joseph had a son. Ephraim, his name meant double fruitfulness. And these confessions of faith and these prayers as reflected by the meanings of the names were answered in powerful ways. Years and days and trials and anguish and hardship and peril and persecution and famine, they proved to be fertile soil for supernatural blessing to flourish for God's people. Joseph's sons would experience their father's testimony of extraordinary provision 
even in and through extreme hardship unto future generations. Now this message and this legacy continues. Once this bough is planted, its fruitfulness only increases. And this picture actually continues through scripture as well. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 80. These early references to Israel as a planting, a tree, or a vine, they're followed by similar imagery throughout covenant history. The prophets pick up on this language. The authors of the psalmist, Psalms do as well at times. The inspired scriptures, scripture authors speak of the vine of Israel at times being threatened because of their sins and covenantal unfaithfulness with judgment. I want you to notice how Psalm 80 so closely parallels this passage that we just read in Genesis 49. Verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Pausing there, did not Joseph, recognize, Jacob, excuse me, recognize God as his shepherd? You who led Joseph like a flock, reference to Joseph, you who enthroned upon, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. There we have the sons of Joseph and, of course, Rachel's other son, Benjamin. Stir up your might and come to save us. So this is a lament. This is a cry. But this is a cry that the psalmist uh, appeals in prayer all the way back to the promises that God gave through the lineage blessing of Jacob in Genesis 49. He cries out, verse 3, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears, given them tears to drink in full measure, made us an object of contention of our enemies. He goes on, verse 8, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You took deep, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Notice this language, this branching, branching language, echoing Genesis 49:22. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. And then there's this cry, why then have you broken down its walls? You know, people come by, it says in verse 15, the stock of your right hand planted, and for your son who you made strong for yourself, they, the enemies, have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. Uh, may they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of whom you have made strong, for whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall turn back uh, from, the, uh, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life. And we call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is a prayer that understands full well what is promised in this imagery of Old Testament fruitfulness. There is a condition for fruitfulness. It must, the planting must have its source in living water. and must be cultivated by the Lord. The Son of Man imagery here speaks, of, of course, to a gardener who will come later, who will take care of this vine, who will tend to it and restore its fruitfulness that has been threatened because of their sin. On this day, the prophets or the cry is, give us life, let us be fruitful again, that we may call on your name, restore us, and let your face shine upon us. If the vine should ever languish, if the fruitfulness of Joseph should ever be threatened, then the garden needs to be tended. The Son of Man must come and restore us. Turn again, O Lord of hosts from heaven, and have regard for this vine, verse 14, the stock that your right hand planted. So this morning, 
we were reading from John 15, where the words and the cry of Joseph is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The prophets go on to echo words like this. Let me touch on one more reference, giving us a little more idea of who the Son of Man is. And Isaiah 11, similar circumstances, uh, are the con historical context that inspired Psalm 80. And Isaiah writes the following, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But he with righteousness shall judge the poor. And it goes on to describe the glorious wisdom of this shoot that springs forth from the stump of Jesse. So there comes a time in the history of God's people where all seems lost. What was a fruitful bough, a planting with branches reaching to the sea, is cut down. It's nothing but a stump. Who is Jesse? Kids, uh, Jesse is whose father? One of the kings of Israel. You guys remember? King who? Anybody? Jesse is whose dad? David. That's correct. Thank you. King David's father. One day, when Israel is languishing under the wicked king Saul, and the people are desperate, because their boundaries are threatened by their enemies and the word of God has languished in their time, now a prophet has sent Samuel to a man's house named Jesse. And upon the brow of his youngest son is poured the anointing oil. His brow receives the oil. This man, uh, David, from the tribe of Judah, he will rise up and he will be that branch, if you will, at least pictured in his reign that we would be fulfilled one day in Jesus Christ. That is... One day, from the line of David, from the stump of Jesse, a branch will arise, a branch will grow, whose fruitfulness will never be challenged, who will never be cut off, and who will reach to the sea and beyond. Who is it? John 15, 1 through 5, our worship text. Jesus proclaiming in his ministry, bringing in this imagery and, and establishing for the people a reference point and a revelation in his ministry of who he truly is, he says, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. He goes on, abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he goes on this way. See, so we see here, how the words of Jacob over Joseph were inspired. Joseph will represent a people who will be known as a fruitful bough. And we see in their own sin and covenantal unfaithfulness, the fruitfulness of that bough was threatened, even cut down as a stump, but all hope is not lost. The answer to the psalmist's prayer in Psalm 80, will come, a son of man will arise. The prophecy of Isaiah in 11.1, will come, a branch shall spring forth from the stump of Jesse. Who is it? Jesus Christ. And as we abide in him, we ourselves become fruitful. And we become another branch, if you will, as he saves a soul to add to this planting and tree, grafted in to spread the fruitfulness of the gospel across the world. And just, uh, you know, a tree is made up of small parts, if you will, many branches and many leaves, but taken as a whole, it can be absolutely impressive. We went down to, I think they were called banyan trees, correct me somebody if I'm wrong, but we were down in Florida, and there's these trees native to Africa that some years ago people planted in this park 
in Florida somewhere, and the kids were literally playing hide-and-seek in their trunks. The tree was incredible. The branch would go out, and it would send a vine down. And once that vine hit the ground at some point, then it triggered some hormones in the tree or something, and it sprouted roots and would grow a new trunk. I mean, under perfect conditions, there's no limit what this tree could do. Send down another trunk, sprout roots and grow, send more branches. I mean, under ideal conditions, all of Florida could be covered by one banyan tree, if you, if you imagine it. And this is kind of the way the kingdom of God is. At first, it's nothing bigger than a seed. Jesus describes it as a mustard seed. Unimpressive. And maybe you see one, you know, for sale and you think, well, I'll plant to see what happens. Or you don't want to spend the money. But what you don't realize is the potential in this tiny thing, what it'll grow into. Sort of reminds you of that fairy tale Jack and the Beanstalk. Next morning, all of a sudden you wake, and here you have branches reaching up to the skies. This is the picture. But the only way that this picture is fulfilled in Joseph's life is if that spring is there, that source of life, and if that bow is sustained by the gardener, the Lord, and if ultimately that bow is not just Joseph or not just a mere man, but instead the vine is the true son of man, Jesus Christ, who will fulfill the legacy of Joseph. And in messianic fruition, these pictures will come together in him. And saints, I'm here to announce to you, I was on the phone with uh, Gene this week, and of course we've heard reports from our missionaries. And lately, as these missionaries are going forth and giving testimony to the gospel, changing hearts in Mexico, Malawi, or Ethiopia, as we support missionaries in these areas, a good picture of this is the boughs reaching forth, if you will, a bearing fruit. As we send missionaries out, as the word of God goes forth, so does the kingdom of God branching out over a new area. And there is fruit of the gospel to be picked in Mexico as God sets up the knowledge of him and, a light, or, and uh, plants the seeds of his truth through the laborers in the field that are there. And as we see this, we uh, recognize that by this way, God's gospel is bearing fruit, fruit that will endure forever even unto eternal life. And the reach of his kingdom will branch over every wall, every wall that is built to keep out the truth of Jesus Christ, the branches will reach over. Even that which once separated, that is the wall between Jew and Gentile, the gospel, so to speak, that fruitful bough has reached over and touched even us. And we are testimony to that in this post-incarnation world we live in. Joseph's fruitful bough. Secondly, I'm going to have to move more quickly. Joseph's unmoved bow. We have this fruitful bow pictured. Now we have unmoved bow, 23 and 24 back in our text. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. There is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. In this picture here, we have this prophecy, this acknowledgement that Joseph will be besieged, that he will experience war and conflict. This presence of conflict will come, but he will be triumphant. Upon occasions of remarkable deliverance, it is a pattern through the course of history that God would set up an altar, a memorial, a ceremony, his word recorded. The revelation of the Lord that would mark a particular moment, a significant intervention of God's will in time, serves a purpose. 
In these moments, God sets up a milestone that later generations might remember in faith when they face their own hardships. So I'm sure, for example, that when Moses was leading the people out of, the, out of Egypt unto the promised land, he would often read to them, as I imagine, this song of Jacob. I think for the, the case for this is strengthened as we compare Moses' own dying song, we won't touch upon it today, Deuteronomy 33, 12-17 as a portion. If we compare Moses' own dying song and blessings over the tribes to, jo- to Jacob's here, we find remarkable similarities. I'm sure part of this is explained in that Joseph, Jacob's testimony here provided a milestone, a point of reference, a faith-building revelation to be proclaimed in the day of hardship when Pharaoh's armies were chasing the people of God or when they were facing starvation in the wilderness. Remember the legacy of Joseph. He too was facing starvation. But not only did God give him enough to eat, but God gave him enough to feed the known world. Can you not trust that the God of your forefather Joseph will supply you supernaturally in the wilderness? And the next morning, manna appears. You see, though God's people face hardship, when God intervened and recorded fruitfulness in spite of difficulty, even in this testimony of Jacob, these words were written down so that the people might remember, yes, I am facing hardship and difficulty and starvation. But just as God promised to supply in the wilderness of famine through Joseph's mystery of old, so he will carry us through this wilderness as well. And so they did. Now, uh, other enemies besides hunger were staring the people down. Enemies that bore, of uh, course, weapons, swords, and bows were there as well. But just like Joseph survived against his enemies, so God would give strength of war and strength of defense to his people as they faced future conflicts. Uh, think of this picture of a bow that is steadied. Now, uh, as we, in other words, though there will be challenges that the people face, God will give them a steadfast re- resilience in the face of this. There's a poetic context here. So if you go to the range with your bow, I know some of you guys who uh, are, do some target practice and so forth on the range, uh, you'll know this better than, than others, that a lot of times part of the rigorous training that you go through to, to prepare for a conflict situation so not to just take careful aim, have your you know, ear protection on, and your target in front of you and focus. That is, if you want to win a marksmanship competition, if you would want to isolate all the variables and focus your attention on one, two, or three shots. However, this is not the best training for war. Rather, when people are training for conflict, they introduce stress and pressure and fatigue. So a bowman might be extremely accurate. A marksman might hit the bullseye five times in a row if he's taking five shots under ideal conditions. But God gives strength beyond this because this does not translate into the demands of a high-stress situation. Imagine after your 200th arrow how fatigued your arms could get. You've been shooting all day long, and yet more enemies are coming over the horizon. And as you knock your 400th arrow and stretch your bow, what happens? Notice my arms, there's fatigue that kicks in. The bow is unsteady. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Now imagine, just like God lifted the arms of Moses holding his staff in the air, 
Imagine the arms of the Almighty One of Jacob reaching around and grabbing a hand in the left hand and a hand in the right of the archer and steadying that bow. That's a picture of the Lord giving strength for battle to his people. His bow, Joseph's bow, because comes unmoved. Those enemies be fierce and numerous, numerous, though the conflict be protracted and long. If the mighty one of Jacob reaches and grabs your hands and steadies your bow, then your marksmanship will be precise and accurate. This principle, I submit, applies not just to physical enemies, the times where God's people needed strength, but to spiritual ones as well. We are facing enemies. Paul describes them most often as principalities and powers, ideas, and philosophies of wickedness. And we need a steady bow as well. Um, this week, you may have seen my wife draw, drew my attention to it. There was a minister who I respect and is well known. I'll leave his name aside for now, but he was asked by a lady, should I attend a transgender wedding of my grandson, this lady, a believer? She loves the Lord, as far as the context I could tell. And to this man's credit, he said, does he know exactly where you stand and that this life decision is wrong and that the gospel calls him to repent? She said, yes, yes. And then he said, this is where I disagree. He said, I would go and I would bring a gift. Why do I disagree? Well, because to attend a wedding, so-called in this case, or a ceremony, is to participate in a, albeit perverted, ostensible covenant ceremony. If you attend a wedding, you exist not just as a spectator in support of the person, but no, you exist as a witness uh, to vows that are being exchanged. So you, you serve a purpose as a witness to solemnize this occasion. So in this sense, to attend a wedding that is outside of God's law is itself unlawful, I would say. And, and it not only provides affirmation, but it, but it does so in a, in, a, in a quite objective and even legal sense. So that is bad advice, bad counsel. It would, so you would send a mixed signal in my estimation. But why do I bring this up? Because there is so much cultural pressure on preachers such as myself, and even more so, much, much more so, on a guy like this who has a public ministry and is very well known. There's so much pressure from culture that when we're trying to make a good shot, we're trying to have wisdom, we're trying to say the right thing, it is easy for our arms to become unsteady. And I'm sure there's examples in your own life where you feel that as well. My aim is wavering because the pressures of culture and the difficulty of this challenge and the enemies that I face, it's hard to be precise and hit the target every time. Let us pray for this individual. Let us pray for ourselves that we would submit to the Lord and his means that in so doing, the arms, the hands of the mighty one of Joseph would reach around, grab our hands and steady our bow. So that whatever enemies that we face, that we be consistent and on target and faithful to our Lord. Besieged yet steadfast and equipped. There's divine reinforcements promised to Joseph. Verse 23, the archers bitter, bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands. And here we have three references. We covered these at length in a past message. We've just, we touched on one already. The mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, and thirdly, the stone of Israel. To these are added in the next verse, God of your father and the almighty. Uh, Jacob helpfully gives multiple names for God to indicate this is the cause, this is the source, this is the enabling grace, the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
He will steady your hands in battle. He will carry you through conflict. He will equip you for the challenges that you face. The character and power of God is expounded in Jacob's song in multiple names for the Lord. Think about our Christmas message recently where we focused on three of these. When Jesus arrived, the mighty one of Jacob took on flesh and was born of a woman and achieved the greatest miracle in all of history to, in the incarnation, to fulfill the demands of redemption, to be born and then go to the cross to die and then to rise again, the mighty one of Jacob. When he came, he came as the great shepherd and among the first to worship him were a group of shepherds affirming in part his role in leading his sheep and not that not one of them would perish, but that the great shepherd would go to great lengths to even get the one and bring them home to the 99. All this because he is the stone of Israel, the chief cornerstone as he himself affirms, the one that the builders rejected, but the one upon which that frame of reference, the whole building stands. This is the equipment. These are the divine enforcements. This is that source, if you will, this is that spring whereby Joseph, the fruitful bough, draws strength and fruitfulness from. He draws it from the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of our fathers, the Almighty. Jacob's faith, I submit, is growing in his old age, perhaps strongest when his eyes are most dim. Perhaps Jacob is spiritually more mature, I would suggest absolutely, than he's ever been as he's gasping his last few dying breaths. This is a man who has been transformed, albeit over a painful amount of years and a lot of difficulties. He's been sanctified in his confession. He now relies upon not his own wits, his ability to trick and manipulate, but no, cries out to the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of his fathers, the Almighty. Thus, on these grounds, he has faith in praying over his son that Joseph's bow, his implement of war, his precision in conflict will remain unmoved. Thirdly, Joseph's blessed brow. The people of Joseph and Benjamin will be known for Joseph's fruitful bow, his unmoved bow, and thirdly, his blessed brow, 25 and 26. <clears throat> by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Listen to the scope of blessings. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb, blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be upon the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Poetic references. Again, here we have brow and head as that which receives the blessing. What could this mean? Well, I would think to yourself, the use of the head as imagery in Scripture it is the head that bears the crown. So it's the symbol of dignity in that sense. Uh, a head that is blessed is often receives the crown of, fa of God's favor and also uh, a delegation to rule, an appointment. Think about the head as well under that anointing oil we referenced before, poured upon the brow of David. The head receives the anointing. That is the commission and call of God, the set-apartness, that appointment, that election, and that enabling for his purposes. These are the types of blessings that people of God, if they remain submitted and planted by the source of living water, if they're tied and grafted in to the vine, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. These are the kinds of blessings that they can't expect. 
upon their head. God will dignify them. He will raise them up to be seated with him in heavenly places to rule and reign with him. They are called out, elect, and anointed by the Holy Spirit, just as the Spirit was poured upon those whom the Lord called and enabled for his purposes through the Scriptures. So he pours out his Spirit on all his people. Post-Pentecost, this is the reality, pictured on that great day when tongues of fire sprung from the heads, the brow, if you will, of the people of God. And the anointing thus of God's Spirit upon all the true confessing believers was fulfilled. And these pictures of the blessings of those who relate to the legacy and are holding to those promises and have them fulfilled in Christ was realized by those who now have the Spirit indwelling them because He has anointed them and He has blessed them beyond all compare. What else does the brow signify? Well, think back to Genesis, all the way back to the sadness of the fall and the consequences of the same. Let me just refer to one verse in chapter 3. You remember the story, Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now a curse is pronounced upon them. And it says in verse 19, over Adam, the Lord declares, by the sweat of your face, your version might say brow, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of you were taken, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. You know, this is preceded by a curse over the wife as well. In pain she shall bear children. And then Adam, he says, curses the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat your bread. To the woman I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Did Rachel not know this kind of pain? She bore Benjamin in such great pain that it took her own life. Did Jacob not know this kind of sweat and toil? He almost died by famine and all his family with him. Jacob knew well the curse of sin as you and I know it as well. The earth does not yield immediate fruitfulness for us. But by the sweat of our brow and the toil of labor in a fallen world, we, until, God, until we are redeemed, are cursed. But what do we see here? In contrast to this, there's coming a day and there is a promise and there is blessing accruing to those who are in covenant with the Lord. May blessings be upon the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. What a glorious picture of redemption. So the brow that once featured the sweat of toil and judgment because of the earth, uh, because of an earth fallen in sin and the sin of our first parents, that toil indicated by the sweat of our fallen condition, that same brow that bore that sweat one day will be redeemed and it will receive the blessings of salvation in the Son of Israel to come. This picture of the brow receiving blessing, which once bore the mark of the curse, is a beautiful picture poetically of the story of salvation. And this is promised to Joseph and to his legacy. And of course, it's promised by extension to us in and through Jesus Christ. Again, the source and nature of this blessing are given in such beautiful terms. This comes from the God of your fathers. He says, uh, Jacob does, that the God of your father will help you, but the Almighty, he will bless you. And this reference to God of your fathers, this indicates that for all true sons of Abraham, 
all true sons of Isaac and Jacob, and by extension their lineage, they are heirs to the same promises, to the same inheritance that was given to Abraham. And this principle carries through to you and I, spiritual heirs of Abraham. The promises of the God of our fathers, our forefathers spiritually, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that inheritance is ours in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 7 through 9 says as much. It declares it to be true of all of God's covenant people, true believers. The Almighty has done this. This reference to God as Almighty corresponds to the nature of the blessings promised, beyond what we could ever hope to earn or deserve, of course. So much beyond it, it can't even compare. And so far beyond of anything that we can experience even in the scope of this life, blessings that accrue unto eternal life, beyond the imagination, are here pictured in superlative language, from the heavens above, blessings from the deep that crouches beneath, Blessings from the breast and of the womb. And in these categories, the heavens above, with respect to our natural existence, that would be the rain and things of that nature, the dew and so forth that falls from the heavens. But there's, of course, a picture even above this. The heavens represent spiritual blessings and the favor of the Lord. And then blessings beneath, that might be the lakes, the reservoirs and so forth, temporally speaking. Or it could even refer to these mines from which you would draw precious stones and gold and silver. But this is language that says from as high as you can imagine to as deep as you can imagine, you will be blessed. It brings to mind language in the New Testament. Where can we be, go from the presence of the Lord? Nowhere. Or as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for us. You see this superlative language describing the blessings that we receive in Christ. Blessings from your Father. Mighty blessings of the parents speaks to a prolific lineage. Many children born. The promises of Abraham that he would bear a people as many as the stars of the sky or the grains of sand on the sea. This is Joseph's blessed brow. There's an exponential future blessing that will come. We contrast this legacy with the inevitable story of human nature where, you know, more often in the sinful world, extraordinary or I should say exceptional people arise once in a while and they acquire for themselves quite the name, quite the renown and legacy. But it's most often the case that that legacy is squandered rather than well-stewarded by the next generation. This is just the way it works in a sinful, uh, with human nature and in a sinful world. But there is an exception to this. There is a family that only grows bigger and greater and more blessed as the number of their children increase. And this is the family of God. These are the true heirs of Abraham. These are the ones who relate to the blessings of Joseph because they have experienced them in the gospel. Last point this morning, Benjamin's triumph. We have Joseph's fruitful bow, Joseph's unmoved bow, Joseph's blessed brow, and finally Benjamin's triumph. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. So here, Rachel's second son, in just a sentence, his, uh, a great huge, uh, future is described and really the shape of the story of Benjamin and his history is prophesied. In the near term, Benjamin will be a warlike people. Though small in number, they'll be great at slinging stones. You can read in the judges. They'll also face formidable enemies. They will be marked by a warlike aggression that will have victories to brag about in the future. And their history will be marked by exploits 
of this tribe wielding weapons of war against their enemies that might threaten them. But there's a longer range significance to this picture as well. That is to say, a tribe that was once marked as one who would devour the prey will also be known as one who divides the spoil. In the course of history, Benjamin will go from one wielding weapons of war to defeat their enemies to sharing the spoils of war with their neighbors. And this really is the course that Benjamin took as a small nation fighting for their very existence to become joined to Judah and eventually, combined with Judah, they become the host nation for the Messiah. And the spoils of war by our champion, Jesus Christ, are now being shared with all the world. If you will, in some sense, Benjamin and Judah, that so- the southern tribes of Israel, as the host nation for the Messiah, in this kind of symbolic way, they become the place from which, the spring from which, the gospel goes forth. Because in these lands, the gospel uh, was accomplished. Redemption was secured. This, generally speaking, is where Jesus would die, where Jesus would rise again, where Jesus would proclaim his words, where Jesus would walk to the distant tribe areas of Zebulun and Naphtali and proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus, when he defeated hell, when he defeated our sin, when he defeated death, He gathered for himself eternal, immeasurable spoils of war. And now from this place, Judah Benjamin, if you will, the spoils of war are being shared with all who would repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ and partake of his spoils, defeating the enemy, defeating their sin by his own death on their behalf. What a glorious picture. You might remember Paul in the New Testament, once called Saul. Saul, by the way, was also from the tribe of Benjamin, the original king of Israel. Well, his namesake in the New Testament, Saul, he once ravaged the church like Benjamin. He was a wolf that went out to stomp out the work of Christ, to persecute and to kill and to bring orders from the priest to imprison anyone who would be of the way and preach the gospel. God changed his heart. And the ravenous wolf became one who divided the spoil of, gospel, of, the, of the gospel with the known world at the time, laid down his own life to give to the world, to Spain, to Macedonia, to the Roman church and beyond, to all of Asia Minor, the missionary investment of Jesus as Lord. Even Paul's own history re- remarkably mirrors this picture. A once ravenous wolf now divides the spoils of blessing with those at one time he opposed, pretty awesome. Here we see, just by a few things that we've connected, these dots we've connected through Scripture, how the Lord is glorified and revealed in the legacy of Rachel's sons. We've also seen, I trust, how we can relate to these blessings and in Christ how they are ours. Let us pray in closing today that we would be able to apply His Word and live in light of these glorious truths. Father, we thank You for what Your Scripture has revealed to us of Jesus Christ, not just in the Gospels, but how those Gospels fulfill the Gospel of old, what you recorded in ages past. I pray so far as the Word has been rightly divided today, that it would produce great fruit in us, not for our glory, but for your name's sake. May you make us a fruitful bough, a church that spreads over the wall, as it were, through support of missionaries and through the influence of the Spirit and through the proclamation of the Gospel to our families and beyond, that to the praise of your great name, that we would bear fruit for the kingdom of God, to draw attention and glory to Jesus Christ, our Lord. I also pray that you would train our hands for battle, make our arms 
uh, in the arms of the mighty one of Jacob, capable for the task at hand. You are our shepherd. You are our stone. You are our father and the father of those who've gone before. In you, the almighty one, we have everything needful for life and godliness. And most of all, we have our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us to, to uh, claim for himself a people to the praise of his glory forever and without end. In his name we pray, amen.